Do you love Uncover from CBC Podcasts? What's your favorite season? Which one did you skip? What do you want to hear more of? Help us make Uncover even better by taking our listener survey now. Visit cbc.ca slash uncover survey to make sure your voice is heard. This is a CBC Podcast. A warning to our listeners. This episode contains strong language. In 2011, Yelena Lecic was at her office in London when her phone buzzed. My friend texted me, said, Yelena, I believe there's your picture, there's an article with your picture in Guardian Online. And I was like, yeah, right. You know, I didn't think much of it. It's just, it must be somebody, you know, looks like me. So no, it, it is you. I mean, I was at work, so I said, OK, I'm going to look at it later. And then I got another text. It said, you know, Yelena, there's an article. You should check this out. You know, it is your picture. And that kind of prompted me to have a look. I did go online. And yes, there was. There was a picture that I recognized. You might remember this picture. It's striking. The woman has chin-length hair, an elegant neck, and a mole just above her left eyebrow. She's smiling shyly and glancing down. She's beautiful. The picture was taken in Paris for my birthday. I think it was a year or a couple of years before. The headline reads, Syrian blogger Amina Abdallah kidnapped by armed men. And I was like, oh my God, what's going on? I contacted Guardian and said, this is not Amina. I have nothing to do with the Syrian uprising or with this person that's apparently been abducted and nobody knows where she is. This is me. That's my picture. I'm Samira Moyadin. This is Gay Girl Gone, Episode 4, On the Face of It. So my name is uh, Jelena Lecic. I'm a Croatian citizen with residency in UK, so London's my home. 2011 was a difficult time for Jelena. I was still recovering after road accident. Jelena had badly injured her legs in a car crash and was recovering for two and a half years. To quote Shakespeare, when sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalions. Because just as Yelena is getting back to work, her family is struck with another tragedy. You know, my dad was diagnosed with cancer, so he was terminally ill. So that was kind of happening at the same time. You know, me trying to get back to normality and dad being ill. It was quite difficult because I couldn't fully travel at the time because my legs were affected. And then Yelena sees her photo in The Guardian. I just thought, oh my God, you know, is the universe telling me something? So yeah, I was totally unprepared. So Yelena calls the Guardian to ask them to take the photo of her down, but they don't believe her straight away. She might be a supporter of the Syrian regime or something. So they tell her they won't take the photo down until they verified her claim. You know, this can be 
I would imagine, fairly quickly verified. But as the minutes tick by and nothing happens, Yelena calls the Press Complaints Commission. Finally, three hours after Yelena's call, the Guardian removes the photo. They took down that picture and replaced with another picture of me. You know, it's like a slap in the face. It's like, okay, we'll take that picture, but I'm going to take another one that we haven't verified. And can't you see that's me still? The Guardian leaves the second photo of Yelena up for more than a day. For Yelena, it feels like an eternity. Meanwhile, the news of Amina's abduction and Yelena's photo is spreading around the world. It just happened so quickly. The news just kind of exploded. It was all over the place. It was on the news, in the newspapers. I mean, that story was obviously covered in Croatia as well. I didn't want my parents, my family to be obviously disturbed. I was a bit worried. I was upset. I didn't know what, you know, what are my rights, what I'm supposed to do, who to notify. I spoke to somebody and they advised me to get a publicist because I was start engaging with the media. So that's what I did. I got a publicist who arranged interview on the Newsnight with BBC, which was a live program. So I was, I was, oh my God, like I've never been on a live TV. It was a big deal. I mean, they got a limo. Somebody came to pick me up. This is a big deal. This is the UK's most respected current affairs show, and the interviewer, Jeremy Paxman, he's the kind of guy you'd bring in to ask the prime minister tough questions. Yelena appears on Newsnight with a Syrian blogger named Mahmoud Hamad. He says that if you're a blogger in a police state, you have to mask your identity. The question is, why would Amina Abdullah ever want her genuine photo be circulated over the internet. It's the last thing, if any, that she wants to sorry, put in. Sorry to interrupt, but what I want to say, probably maybe she's, somebody wants to hide her identity. That's why they put my picture. But what I want to say, I really sympathize with Amina. And if, you, if it's a real person, you know, it's awful she's being kidnapped. But for me, it's been very upsetting. I remember hearing this news about Amina's photo not being Amina. Honestly, it didn't really surprise me. Yes, it's totally shitty to use someone else's photo. But in the blogosphere, a lot of people don't use their real photos. But it's particularly shitty for Sandra. I fantasized over Yelena I know, for six months without knowing Yelena. So that was strange. And I remember trying to reach out to Yelena at that moment and saying, look, I'm very sorry. Uh, I'm guessing you must be like very troubled and in shock and on my end, you know, I'm living through that experience as well. Da, da, da. But uh, yeah. Did she respond? She never responded. So, you know, I try to make sense out of that crazy move of stealing someone else's identity. It was like the war uh, was still rushing in Syria. You know, she could really have stolen Yanela's picture to protect her identity. But I think that there was a big shift, you know, and 
assuming that I was in a like a virtual relationship with someone that I fantasized on because of the pictures, then shifting it to someone that I don't know what the person looks like anymore. So my shift was like, okay, then it's not about physical attraction. Uh, it's about more about the relationship that we built, the correspondence, the things that we shared between each other. Behind that, there was still someone that was writing to me. So I kind of left that on the side and I just focused on the person. And so it was somewhere around this time that I reached out to The Guardian because no one else had talked to Amina in person. NPR's Andy Carvin is still investigating any lead he can. Maybe The Guardian can tell him more. I mean, after all, they did do that big interview with Amina. The article was called A Gay Girl in Damascus Becomes a Heroine of the Syrian Revolt. Perhaps they knew her real identity. Perhaps that they were leaving out information in their article to protect her identity, which would be understandable. But I needed to know that as a journalist. So I wouldn't make the situation worse. And so I reached out to The Guardian to see what they had to say. How did The Guardian respond to you? The Guardian wrote back and stated that they had conducted pre-interviews with her, messaging back and forth with her, and that they had arranged a meeting in person in Damascus, and that if either of them felt threatened in any way, that they should call it off. Amina apparently did not show up at the meeting point, and when the reporter reached out to her by texting her, Amina texted back and appeared panicky that it wasn't safe for her to be doing this anymore. And the journalist determined that they had enough material by texting back and forth, and that would be enough to write the profile of her. So all of the quotes presented in the article had come to the journalist by texting, and none of them had been communicated face-to-face, despite the fact that the article had given the impression that the journalist met Amina in person. If even The Guardian was now acknowledging that they hadn't interviewed her in person, something was going on here, and whatever it was, Amina wasn't who she said she was. And there's one thing The Guardian says that really gets Andy's attention. The Guardian had also noted that when they first planned to interview her in person, Amina told them to rely on that same photo to recognize her. In other words, Amina told the Guardian to use the photo of Yelena Lichich to identify her. That could only mean one thing, that Amina never intended to show up in the first place and that Amina never intended to reveal her true identity to the Guardian. Hey, I'm Charlie Webster. I'm the host of a show called Scamander. It's all about a woman from California named Amanda C. Riley, a beloved member of her local community and dying of cancer. 
But it was all one big lie. If you think you know what Scamander is about, think again. There is so much to the story that you will not see coming. The pregnancy is reversing the cancer. Listen to the show everyone is talking about. The Twisted Journey of Scamander is available now wherever you get your podcasts. I felt like it was important to say publicly that I had grave doubts that Amina was real. And I had I had to work myself up to posting that. On the day Amina was abducted, Liz Henry, a blogger from San Francisco, was one of the first people to publicly cast doubts on Amina's identity. In 2011, I was living on a houseboat with my partner and our two children. It was a small boat that was non-functional. It was just very cheap rent. I would describe it as living in a very wet trailer park. I was working as a software engineer and web producer for a company called BlogHer, which was a network of women bloggers that also ran in-person events, giant conferences full of women bloggers. I was looking to diversify the blog network. I really didn't want it to be all white women in the United States, and I volunteered to cover world blogs. Liz's whole world was blogs especially international ones. So of course she had seen the famous Guardian article calling Amina the heroine of the Syrian revolution. Not only was it exciting to see blogging coverage, but seeing anything queer in the media was exciting. Like what year was Ellen DeGeneres going, I'm gay, into the microphone? You know, yeah. that was... I, I, At the I, airport. Yeah, I would have to look what year that was, but it was still exciting. That moment was back in 1997. I actually remember sitting on the couch with my mom, watching as the comedian Ellen DeGeneres announced to the world that she was gay. I wasn't out to my mom at this point, so after Ellen came out, my first instinct was to actually turn off the TV. I thought if I continued watching, it was going to be a clear sign to her that I was gay. But then I backtracked, thinking that if I turned the TV off, it would be way too obvious. So I end up just freezing. I didn't do anything. I was too busy having this emotional crisis to even look over at my mom. But when I did, she was laughing at the jokes and she, she didn't even seem shocked at all. Oh yeah, and Oprah was also on that episode. And so the only explanation that I could come up with was that if Oprah was okay with it, apparently my mom was okay with it too. Thank you, Oprah. Anyway... It was a big shift, not just in Hollywood, but in many a queer youth's living room. For me, as a queer activist, I come out of that background where it's important just to get our stories there at all or any kind of representation. And to me, that's what Amina was, a representative, an ambassador for us queer Middle Easterners. She was the one who was getting our story out there. How did you feel when you first heard she was abducted? I was upset. I was just like, oh no, one of ours, someone who's bravely writing, is facing like the ultimate, really just like people's worst fear, like the horrible knock on the door or being like shoved into a van. So I was appalled. I was like, she's in detention. She's probably being tortured or something. God knows what's happening to her. So it felt like an emergency. I remember coming to work in the office at BlogHer and being like, hey guys, like there's a movement now for free Amina. And 
we should cover it. Like we should write about it and help that effort. And is that the feeling that was in the office? Like all hands on deck, let's go. There was definitely a playbook of when someone is detained or there's like some human rights issue and it's a journalist or a writer that we know about, <laughs> there's like things we can do. We can contact the State Department. We can start having articles. We can have petitions and things. You know, we're trying to create some kind of pressure to release someone. Liz starts by reading everything that Amina's ever written and shared online. So I went reading everything that I could find and realized that all of the articles online only referenced her blog as a reference point. There was no other evidence of her existence and no one had met her. Something is fishy. <laughs> Liz finds an older blog that predates Gay Girl in Damascus. Amina wrote it all the way back in 2007. She wrote about writing a fictionalized novel about her life. So I was like, okay, here's somebody who experiments with personas and different backgrounds and fiction and writing in first person as if they're that person. This blog will have what may sometimes seem like deeply personal accounts. And sometimes they will be, but there will also be fiction. And I will not tell you which is which. As Liz continues reading and unraveling all of Amina's blog posts, she finds they are all perfect narratives. There's a pattern that seemed very familiar to me, which is a pattern of a fabulist who spins stories effortlessly and who does stories within stories and who can shift what that story is depending on the situation to fit a particular situation. And so you had seen this pattern before. I had seen this pattern before. I fucking hate liars. And was that one of the things that was sort of spurring you on? Like, I'm, I want to get to the root of this. I want to know who this is. Yeah. Lying fundamentally harms the fabric of society. I mean, I know we can all think of a situation where we do a white lie or we glide over something or we do a lie of omission. But lying often is just, it harms the trust that other, that people can have in each other. And it, it, it is a risk to good things happening. And for Liz, the good thing being risked was the ideal of the internet, the whole blogosphere. I feel strongly about participation in public intellectual life. And to me, the internet in general, not just blogging, but the net provides a place where we have unfiltered access to the means of cultural production and distribution. So that means I don't have to get an editor to approve what I'm writing. I don't have anyone telling me our advertisers don't want you to write about abortion. <laughs> you know, there's no one to say, take the gay out of your novel. I can just tell whatever stories I have to tell. As we know now, that can sometimes go wildly off the rails in various ways. But I still believe in it as a very powerful idea and a liberating force for humanity in general. It's weird to listen to someone talk about the internet like this. 
That warm and fuzzy version feels so long ago, before we had these tech-bro billionaires feeding off our most basic qualities of what it means to be human. But in 2011, the internet was still worth saving. It was a refuge, a, a place of connection for many people. And Liz, who hates liars, was compelled to preserve what she could. So Liz writes a post on her blog titled, Painful Doubts About Amina. This morning, I woke up to reports that Amina Abdallah, a.k.a. Amina Abdallah Araf al-Omari, who blogs on Gay Girl in Damascus, had been detained in Syria. Liz lays out four possibilities. One, Amina is, as she appears to be, a talented writer living in Syria, perhaps with a different name and with the names of her family members obscured. Two, Amina is someone else entirely in Syria. Three, Amina is someone else. Anything goes. Four, Amina is Sandra Bagaria. I was immediately suspicious of Sandra Bagaria. She was one of the top candidates of who created the hoax, just from my first thinking through who could have done this, right? I quickly dispelled that from talking with her. We did a face-to-face chat. You know, she had a kind of an identity that I could find pretty quickly. I didn't think she was capable of it or motivated by it. She wasn't seeking fame in a certain way. You know, the whole thing was embarrassing for her, but she was a very civic-minded person that wanted to save this person if they were actually in trouble. Conspiracy theories about Amina started circulating. Is she a member of the security services herself? Is she an Israeli Mossad agent trying to infiltrate the regime? Is she working for someone else? Is she even a she? Uh, People had all sorts of crazy ideas of who she might be and what her actual intent was. But more and more people were beginning to take the position that Amina simply was not a blogger who was now under arrest and that that there was something else going on here that was much more complex and much more troubling, and we had to get to the bottom of it. So I think fairly early on, I was talking to Andy Carvin because Andy was tweeting at a high volume. That was kind of what he did (laughs) at the time. It was like Andy Carvin, you know, Twittering 30 times an hour. It seemed pretty clear that I wasn't going to solve this mystery in my own. But fortunately, this was a community of individuals who wanted to support each other's investigation. We had our crew of people at NPR working on the case. Over at the Washington Post, uh, Elizabeth Flock and Melissa Bell were investigating and finding all sorts of important leads. Meanwhile, you had bloggers over at Electronic Intifada. You had researchers and activists who focused on Internet identity like Liz Henry, who were trying to figure out this whodunit. But in this case, it wasn't a whodunit. It was a who is it. We used social media to share our latest thinking with each other. As we started pulling together leads, it became clear that Amina had been online for a number of years. And before she became a blogger, she had been active on a number of email discussion lists. I managed to get a hold of a couple of people who were active with her on those lists. 
And they just began to raise further doubts. The person who introduced me to this email discussion list suggested that I join an even smaller list that they had been on at one point in time. And so they added me to the group and I introduced myself, described what was going on, and just asked everyone what they could tell me about Amina. They seemed to have more awareness of who she was for a longer period of time than anyone else. And then all of a sudden it disappeared. The entire discussion group vanished. It was as if it never existed in the first place. Someone had erased the community and its entire archive and its membership list. I then started going and taking a look at Amina's other profiles on different platforms where she had posted poetry, where she had posted dating ads. One by one, they all vanished too. Whoever this person was, I had just spooked the hell out of them. Andy knew the only person who could delete a post in these groups was an administrator. So he had a look. There were only two administrators, and one of them was his source who had let him into the group. The other was the email account for Amina Araf. This Amina persona had nuked all of these accounts, and that truly pointed to someone out there who did not want to be identified for whatever reason. Liz is also having strange interactions online. There was discussion on my blog, on my comments, and then in email threads with other investigators like Andy and others. Pretty quickly, we were joined by someone who I concluded was the hoaxer. And what what was that person's name? They went under Amy Young. Amy Young. And how did you figure out that this is this is the hoaxer? Partly that fabulous writing style that I described. A little bit of writing style and a little bit of the way that the stories spin out. Amy would write a, you know, 3,000-word email suddenly, very quickly. <laughs> I was also capable of that. I could write a nine-page email like nobody's business at that time. But Amy Young was writing these long emails that said, what if it was like this? Oh, what if it was like this? What if this is the story? What if there was this twist? Do you think that any of those are plausible do you think people would be angry if they found out they were true? <laughs> she was spinning multiple possible stories of who Amina could be, why we couldn't find Amina, how Amina might be actually in Syria, but disguising their identity a further layer. What if it was actually a hoaxer, but they had these noble motivations? So telling many possible stories and then asking sometimes the group, but often me personally, on a private thread, which of these stories do you think might be more true? Or which one seems plausible to you? Or do you think that any of these would make people less angry? So that made me think, you're trying out these stories to see if I'll buy it and to see what I think about how you could spin this. You became the guinea pig. Yes. One of the theories Amy Young, I think, suggested was that what if Amina was a hoax, but the hoaxer was a trans woman 
who was closeted and not able to explore their identity in their real life. And what if by unmasking that person, we were harming a vulnerable trans woman in Syria? And how did that make you feel? Of course, I worried about that. <laughs> um, and yet, I think for me, it was important to establish the truth. Um, so for me, truth overrides a lot of things. Amina hung out in a lot of online forums, and Liz was meticulously working her way through them. She found one that hadn't yet vanished. There was also information on a forum that was meant for discussing Middle Eastern politics and culture. Liz starts chatting with a guy in the group. He was very helpful. Uh, he talked to us about his years of knowing Amina online. And he said, you know, I actually even sent her a Christmas card a couple of years ago. You know, I think it was like Klingons dressed in Santa hats or something. It was like something very nerdy. So he sent this Christmas card and it was an address in Stone Mountain, Georgia. A suburb of Atlanta, Georgia. So we kind of like zoomed in from there. Scott's Christmas card was really the key. And so we started taking a look at all the people who had ever lived at that address, looking at tax records and real estate records, whatever we could find. And a number of names would pop up in the records again and again and again, but they were all Western names. Uh, none of them were Arab in origin. It was like the smoking gun evidence. And then Liz gets approached by someone named Paula Brooks, the U.S.-based editor of that website, Les Get Real. Amina wrote for Les Get Real. Paula tells Liz that she has a record of all the times Amina logged into their system. If you're logging into something, often your IP address, like the source of your internet connection, may have location data associated. And that was pinned down to Edinburgh. So an IP address in Edinburgh, in Scotland. But a mailing address in Stone Mountain, Georgia. And then there's a breakthrough. And the first to make the connection is Electronic Intifada a pro-Palestinian publication that's joined the chase. They were also looking at those Georgia real estate records and found that someone listed as an owner of the property is now living in Edinburgh, Scotland. His name is Tom McMaster. Next time on Gay Girl Gone... A confession. At this point in time, we were the only three people who knew that the person or people that were behind Amina Raf were going to release a statement. And a conversation. After I got the out-of-office message, she replied me back eight minutes later saying, yes, we will give you an interview. How about 1.30 p.m. today? Gay Girl Gone was written and produced by me, Samira Moyedin, Brenna Daldorf, 
and executive producer Peggy Sutton. Sound design and mixing by Jeff Empman. Original music by Reza Mogadas. Amina's blog posts are read by Tracy Rahi. Deborah Dudgeon is the executive producer of podcasts at Raw, and Georgina Savage is the lead producer. Suzanne Hamilton is the production executive. Our team from CBC Podcasts includes Roshni Nair, who is our digital producer. Ashley Mack is our senior producer. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is the senior manager of CBC Podcasts, and RF Norani is the director. Special thanks goes to Raw production team Joanne Patterson, Anna Marie Batho, and Rowan Lee Potter. Thanks to the BBC Motion Gallery via Getty Images for the use of an archive clip. If you're enjoying this series and want to help new listeners discover the show, please take some time to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Consider checking out another series from CBC. One I really liked is Bloodlines. It's a podcast about the missing children of ISIS fighters. You can find it, along with all other CBC podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts. Tune in next week for an all-new episode of Gay Girl Gone. Or you can hear next week's episode now by subscribing to our channel on Apple Podcasts. You'll get access to the best of CBC storytelling early and ad-free. Just click on the link in the show description. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.